is Dr. Julie Costin, and we are here today with a special episode on COVID-19 and what it means to special education in the United States. I am here with two of my smartest friends on this topic. I've got uh, Pat Radel is here, and he is a special education lawyer and friend of mine. And Tanya Frederick is a director of student services and friend of mine. And we're here having a conversation today in hopes of providing some guidance and support to those of you who are navigating these systems. So welcome, Pat, and welcome, Tanya. Glad you're both here. Um, would each of you mind, I'll, I guess I'll start with you, Pat, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience in case people don't know who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm a practicing attorney uh, with the law firm of Getnick, Livingston, Atkinson, and Priori. I'm based in Utica, New York, uh, which is uh, upstate central New York. And I have represented families of students with disabilities in special education matters uh, for 15 years. And I am also a parent of a student with a disability. Great. Thanks, Pat. And Tanya? Hi, Julie. Uh, this is Tanya Frederick. I'm a director of student services in the Southeastern District in Wisconsin, um, about 7,500 students. And um, just really looking forward to having conversation about what this, this means to us as we move forward and how we collaborate with families. Great. Thank you. And we want to start out by saying that, um, you know, today is today and we recognize that times are changing every, every single day. Um, and these are really new times for us and that causes us to have new challenges. So the three of us are together because we're feeling like there's a need to be creative and supportive and connected uh, to people who are going through this. So um, anything else to add at the introduction, Pat or Tanya? I'll just add by way of disclaimer that um, I'm glad to be here talking about uh, legal topics. Uh, certainly the law that we're gonna talk about in general terms is federal law. It's gonna be applicable at any school in the United States, but individual states may make uh, particular decisions that impact schools located within those jurisdictions. So we're happy to provide general legal information and education. Uh, but if people have uh, you know, very specific questions about particular situations or how their state may be handling uh, specific issues, they should certainly be consulting with an attorney um, in, admitted to practice in their jurisdiction um, and formally engaged to represent. Thank you. And I would just piggyback off that also. I mean, we are looking at guidance on a moment by moment, moment basis. And as Julie said, this is information in real time. And um, while we're waiting for bigger guidance, we have kids and families and educators that we're trying to lead um, and just trying to think about what is reasonable and makes the most sense as we consider individual child uh, needs as they're impacted by a mandated closure. Beautiful. And I'm just going to add, you know, today's March 18th, 2020. That's where we are right now. So we're using the guidance that we have at this moment to help guide you in leading this important work. So let's just back up with kind of a basic legal framework. And I'm going to turn to Pat to ask you this kind of um, back up for us and share with us what do we need to understand legally uh, before we jump into the specifics about this time? Sure. We'll start with we'll just call it Special Ed 101. Yeah. Um, there's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, uh, that guarantees students with disabilities a right to a free, appropriate public education, or FAPE, 
as we call it, sort of in the in the practice. Um, and in addition, there is uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which uh, prohibit discrimination based on disability. Um, and that means more than just what we would generally consider to be discrimination. Um, it imposes an obligation on schools uh, to provide accommodations and access to students with disabilities to educational programs and activities that they would be otherwise eligible to participate in if they didn't have a disability. Um, so those are the, that's sort of the general framework is, is students with disabilities having a right to a free appropriate public education um, and having a right to reasonable accommodations and access to educational programs. So does the law predict something like this? Does the law speak to pandemics and significant issues where you know many, many, many schools are likely to close? Is that anywhere in there? No, not at all. As, as of yet, I mean, we'll see what ends up happening uh, on a state-by-state -state basis or in Congress in terms of enacting some sort of a safe harbor or granting uh, waivers from requirements that, that are otherwise applicable. But no, there are no uh, built-in exceptions to uh, either IDEA or 504 ADA for you know long-term school cultures due to pandemic. Uh, generally speaking, schools are considered to have a pretty significant flexibility to make uh, short-term changes to a student's program and services. Um, usually that's considered about 10 school days or less. Um, the school has, like I said, pretty significant flexibility um, for disciplinary reasons, for snow days, things like that, to make uh, what I'll call unilateral temporary changes to the educational program or services of a student with a disability. Uh, anything lasting beyond 10 school days, uh, technically under the, the law, um, I think is a very good argument. It's considered a change in placement, um, which triggers a requirement for an IEP meeting, disclosure, all of these, that, that sort of very familiar process um, with then parents having the right to have that decision reviewed via a legal proceeding. Um, all of those things technically would check, uh, kick in um, after 10 school days have elapsed if the student is, uh, there's been a change in the, the quantity or type of uh, programming or services being delivered to the student. So that really leads us to an important point in time, right? So we've got lots of parents that are listening and they're thinking, oh my goodness, if there's a big change, I'm going to be expecting an IEP meeting that's formal and legal and those kind of things. And Pat, you're saying, yeah, in general, that's what it usually looks like. I also have Tanya on the phone who's saying, well, that would be, you know, 900 IEP meetings or something to that effect. And so we've got to figure out with, you know, what is possible and then what is the law suggesting? So can you help us sort of walk that line. Pat, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I think I think we have to ask ourselves sort of as a, as a, a parent community or a community of those who care about students with disabilities, um, what's the best way to achieve the result that we're all looking for? Um, so certainly we want to be unapologetic advocates for um, equity and access. Right. We understand that all students are going to be disadvantaged by this situation, um, but students with disabilities are perhaps uh, most at risk um, and stand to lose the most because they rely on uh, the programming and the services they receive. So without in any way sort of backing up that commitment, I think there's 
something to be said very strongly for having a practical consideration to say is the best way to make sure that the most amount of students get the most amount of services to sort of crash the system with insistence on the, the very technical requirements of the law. Um, you know, I, I'm going to suggest that that's probably not the right approach, that being um, more practical and saying, look, what are the hallmarks of the, the IEP process? It's disclosure, it's communication, it's an individualized determination, it's parental participation. Um, and then if we can come up with uh, creative ways to meet those considerations that, that maybe we're going to, that, that's the best we can do under these circumstances. Um, and we let's see how it plays itself out. Great. Tanya, do you have any, anything to say about that sort of really tricky balance? Because we're pretty much under the 10 day in most places we're under 10 days currently, but what does that look like from your end? Yeah, so in the state of Wisconsin, the governor de declared a public state of emergency. So all schools are closed until further notice. And that came out last night. Mm -hmm. So that really changed things. Um, I think originally we were thinking we were under the 10 days and now we're looking at longer. Mm -hmm. And from the get-go, we've um, emphasized the biggest piece of the hallmarks that, that Pat mentioned. You know, how is each case manager communicating with individual families prior to, during, and after the closure. And really, really being super transparent and clear with each family about their child and thinking about what's the plan for their individual child during this closure. How are they gonna communicate with the family and or the students? Mm -hmm. And how are they gonna communicate afterwards? And just having really clear um, expectations that are specific to their child. So when we think about holding 900 IEP meetings in our system, because that's yeah. how many kids with disabilities that we have that have IEPs, that feels overwhelming. But when you ask each case manager to have a one-on-one -on -one, um, conversation via technology or phone with a family about their child on their caseload, and they document that individual plan, that feels more manageable, mm -hmm. um, that there's agreement and clarity. Mm -hmm. So that's the approach we're taking at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, because that's, it felt like the most important thing was for the case manager that knows that student the best from a, you know, what's their disability related need perspective to really be that conduit to families and think about what do kids need to access during these times and what makes sense for their child. What would a reasonable person do? We keep going back to. Yeah. And that re that concept of being reasonable is really important, right? So all of us aren't panicking and we're making the very best decisions we can based on the students that we love and care about. Um, yeah, and I, think, I think it sounds like the, the process that you followed, Tanya, was a, was a good one, where if you're a school team, you're sitting down and saying, okay, what does the law technically require? And how much of that can we practically do? Um, and to the extent that we can't, how can we still um, put into practice the, the spirit of the law and accomplish its objectives, albeit maybe not with the technical legal precision that we might otherwise like to have. Um, and then I think as, from a parent standpoint, you know, hopefully your school district is going to be proactive and be reaching out to you um, and, and following a course uh, that, that meets those objectives. But if it doesn't, then I think it's our job as parents to, to be proactive and to be reaching out and saying, you know, I would like, we, 
whether I want to ask for an IEP meeting or not, I would like to have a, a conversation with people at the school district who are knowledgeable about my child, about their disability, um, and understand better what your game plan is for this uh, period of time. Great. So let's talk about whole schools being shut down, which is pretty common in most states right now. Uh, we've got whole school closures. And we all know that the U.S. Department of Education said that if the school is not providing education to any students, then there's not obligation to provide education to students with disabilities. Um, so, Pat, can you talk more about that in terms of what that looks like and means? Yeah, I mean, I understand that's what the Department of Education said. I think they were approaching it maybe mainly from a discrimination standpoint. In other words, so if you are not providing education to anybody, that's sort of being spread across the whole population. Therefore, students with disabilities kind of wouldn't have anything to complain about. Um, <laughs> I know that's what the Department of Education says. Um, I'm not sure that's how the courts are going to ultimately interpret it if it gets to that point. Right. Uh, students with disabilities have special rights that their peers don't have. They have a right to a free, appropriate public education. Um, and if they've been identified under IDEA, um, I don't think the uh, U.S. Department of Education has the authority to grant blanket waivers um, to a school district from their FAPE obligation. So if I were a school district um, taking that position, I would be concerned that that's not going to hold up. And if I was uh, representing families of a student with disability in that scenario, I would not, I would not accept that as an answer. Um, if I had family call me and say, the school wants to have an informal IEP meeting and come up with sort of a temporary contingency plan, I'm going to be saying, I think maybe let's have a conversation about that and not get caught up on the technicalities. If I get a call from a family that says, my school says none, no kids are getting distance learning, so my child with a disability is not getting anything either, um, I think I'm going to have a different reaction to that type of posture on the part of the school. And I think as we've talked in Wisconsin, we're taking that stance also. Um, there's a lot of districts that feel that if they do nothing for anybody, they're good. And I just, again, go back to what's reasonable and how do we think about the added protections that kids with disabilities have? And how do we provide them families with consultation and continuum of learning? Um, that's going to be the best case scenario for kids during a really challenging time. So I appreciate that perspective. So... Um, it seems like we should move from the concept of, you know, if the whole school is shut down to the other common issue, which is the school might not be shut down, but it might not be safe for certain students with certain disabilities. Um, and so how should people be thinking about that? Sure. So if the, if the parent has decided to keep the student home because they believe they're at a special, uh, have special vulnerability to uh, COVID-19, that should be supported by a medical excuse, um, and then that would trigger a responsibility on the part of the school district to provide homebound instruction, just like it would for any student who was on a long-term medical leave. If it's a school decision, so the school has decided this, this student is at risk and we don't think that they can be safely supported in, in the district, that likewise needs to be based on individual consideration. I would think the school's position would want to be involved in that. Um, and it certainly would not be, shouldn't be based on any sort of a prejudice or assumption sort of categorically that all students with this presentation um, are necessarily at less risk or greater risk um, would have to be an individualized determination. Great. And so are there any practical considerations that you think about when you're thinking about these kinds of school shutdowns that we should be highlighting for families? Anything else 
or for educators or administrators? Anything else people need to be thinking about? So I'll just sort of jump in quickly on some practical considerations from a legal standpoint. Okay. Um, the Department of Ed guidance, although I, I don't agree with the, the guidance that um, not providing it to anybody means it's okay not to provide to students with disabilities, um, a couple points from the guidance I, I did think were helpful. Uh, one was that if you are providing education to typical students, the school district has the obligation to try to make those opportunities available to students with disabilities to the greatest extent possible. Um, and the guidance also did make it clear that that included related services. So we're not just talking about academic instruction, we're talking about those really important therapies um, as well. Uh, the Department of Ed recommended collaboration between uh, local educational agencies and state educational agencies, certainly collaboration with parents, um, and consideration of distance learning, online virtual instruction, telephone instruction, and other curriculum-based activities. Um, I think those are all good, um, good tips and helpful points. Uh, one other last thing, there was a letter from the Department of Ed that they issued in the um, Superstorm Sandy a scenario back in 2012. It indicated that some of the sort of stricter deadlines that might apply in the special education context may be able to be altered or adjourned or extended uh, given extenuating circumstances. That's great. And Tanya, are there anything, any other practical considerations? I know before we get up, before we finish this particular podcast, I want to make sure that you share with our listeners um, this incredible list of um, online and other kinds of distant learning type activities and things like this, which I think would help everybody. Um, so that's that being said, I think what I'll do is um, put it up on my website, I guess, Tanya, is that okay with you? Yeah, that would be fine. Um, and it's an ever-growing list. Um, one of the things I have to say is that many of the subscription-based platforms that exist for students across the nation, those companies have waived any kind of fees to be able to access them. Um, you know, I think we're really seeing the nation come together and try to do what's best for kids, which I think is a great practical application. Um, the amount of creativity and out-of-the-box thinking um, that teachers are coming up with, that uh, parents are even suggesting and being able to think differently has been super amazing. Um, so I think that we're seeing a lot of people coming together. Um, you know, I think that um, if we're in this for the long haul, people need to take a breath, <laughs> slow down. Um, I would love to say that in a seven-hour school day, every moment of that seven hours is engaged in high-quality learning. Um, but we know that, you know, schools have a lot of ebbs and flows to the days. So what, what learning from a, from a distance and learning at home looks like, it's, it doesn't need to be seven hours sitting at a table pounding out work. Um, and so we're just going to have to be reasonable and logical and creative and think about what makes the most sense for individual kids and their families. And also recognize that some families are really having some big struggles right now as far as, you know, what is their paycheck going to look like? What is their own job? Are they trying to work from home, but also manage their child's programming? Um, there's some big struggles. And I just think giving grace to each other and just and really recognizing the humanity of it is, is just a really practical thing that we need to keep in the back of our mind over getting really stressed out about IEP minutes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think that's really important. And I think a lot of us, when we get nervous, tend to keep going on the same path that we've always been on, right? And I think that gives us a bit of safety. Um, and so your point is really well taken. Taking a deep breath, 
thinking logically about what's best for kids. Also remembering that some of the best learning can happen even at home. And so we can, you know, to bake cookies and to um, go outside for a walk and to collect rocks and to do all those kinds of things can be really, really beneficial for kids. Um, and we've got to think about how we're thinking about the word minutes, how we're thinking about special education services and supports. And some of the best stuff is project-based learning that happens, that can happen sometimes anywhere. Um, Another thing I'll just sort of add to that is um, I, I have sort of a top 10 list of parts of IEPs that are legally required to be considered but are neglected uh, often in my experience. Yeah. Um, one of those is uh, is parent training. You know, that's something that can be, that can can and should be considered as part of an individualized education program mm -hmm. is um, what support does the parent need to be um, a participant in the student's education? And I think that's, um, that was always important. Um, it's perhaps more important now than, than ever, um, since a lot of that learning and that, that learning environment is going to be controlled by the parent. So for schools to think about how they can provide supports to parents um, so that they can be um, good partners um, and have the right skills to to make to capitalize so that the school can do all kinds of great work and set up distance learning modules. But if the parent doesn't have the necessary uh, skill set and information to implement that, um, it's it's going to be for naught. So I think those are considering parent training and parent support is something that should be part of that that process um, as the school formulates the contingency plan. Yeah, Pat, and that's been a huge part of that conversation that we've been having with parents. Um, and if the parent, you know, if they have an in-home support or somebody that's also working with a child, figuring out how to connect with that person so we can teach them the best strategies and skills and also information about how to, um, you know, use the materials because we're really also putting together boxes of, you know, manipulatives and supplies and things like that that have been sterilized um, <laughs> that then go into homes because we know that not every child is going to be able to participate with a screen-based platform. And so I think that's the other practical tip is really thinking about, to Julie's point, is project-based learning so important? And how do you put those things together and then guide the person that's with the child that's going to be taking them through that if it's a more one-on-one um, -on -one piece? Um, and putting that in that plan and agreement also. That's been really helpful. Thank you. I wanna, I wanna change gears a little bit, thinking about kids and parents. And I just wanna make sure that people have a pretty clear understanding of the ways in which most folks are saying it's best to talk to kids about COVID-19 and the best way to talk to kids about um, what it's why we're not in school and those kind of things in age appropriate ways. So I'm just going to share kind of the best thinking that I've gathered from all types of sources. So I'm just going to kind of share 10 big ideas. The first is remaining really calm with your with your students and your children, giving them extra attention. So if you think about your own self as an adult, um, this is taking an emotional toll on every one of us, but for kids who have less information, it often is taking a bigger toll on them, uh, making sure that they're getting extra self-care um, and that you're available as an as a adult for extra listening and extra affection. Um, hold on a second. <laughs> um, that you're monitoring and reducing TV media. 
That's something really important because there's a lot out there. Some of it is accurate. Some of it is not. And we just don't really want our kids out there in the world of, of social media learning um, about it through that. Uh, also, we want to make sure things are honest and accurate. Um, and we consider the emotional impact everything has on kids. The last thing I want to say is about designing a schedule. There's been so much out there that kids need schedules in order to feel safe. And I want to say that's true partly. I also think kids should have a lot of choice in the schedules that they design so that we're kind of differentiating schedules that meet the unique needs of each and every individual student in our care. So those are just basic guidelines that I found kind of all over and put together around how to best talk to uh, your children about COVID-19 and the impact. Is there anything you want to add to that, Tanya or Pat? I think that um, if parents do even Google search or we had educators do some searches around kid-friendly ways, um, there's social stories that are already created about why are we not at school? Why are we not doing all the things we've we've done? Um, there's a lot of great crowdsourced information that people have put out there. As always, I, I recommend that you vet it from start to finish before mm-hmm. you, you look at it with a child. But we've been super impressed with some of the created materials that people have pushed out um, that people can just grab and use um, to help to help kids, regardless of of how old they are, you know, help them understand what is this all about? Because I think as adults, sometimes we don't even have the words and there's some really great resources that have been created to give us some framework and to um, adjust those messages as a family, because you know, what's best for your kids. Um, But there's a lot of good things out there. So been been super um, pleased with the responses of nation to get good materials out there because having the web gives us the opportunity. Beautiful. I just had, uh, Hopefully, most, if not all, school districts are going to be more in Tanya's mold and uh, being very proactive and participatory and and collaborative and communicate communicate with families and coming up with programs that can uh, help support students with disabilities during this time. But I think, you know, as as always, this is not a pitch for business, um, but it is a pitch for, hey, if you're getting silenced from your district or the response, the information they're sending home, the same worksheets they're sending home to all the other students in your your child's grade. And that's not uh, differentiated. It's not uh, matched up to their learning style. Um, we need to be calling other parents, talking to lay advocates, and necessary talking to attorneys or talking to your school district about um, how do we advocate. And even though we're not going to exalt form over substance, um, we still want to make sure, in, a, in a, again, a, a respectful, a collaborative way, but also uh, unapologetically recognize that, you know, each day of education lost um, is harmful to all students, but uh, disproportionately to our students with disabilities. Um, and it's our job as as uh, parents and advocates to, to make sure that we're keeping them in the forefront of the minds of the people that are making the decisions about programs and services. Thank you. So that's kind of what parents should be doing. And I want to jump to, is there anything different or special that educators should be doing right now that we haven't mentioned? Um, And Tanya, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. I think um, really taking care of themselves is one of the things that I'm really trying to um, stress. Um, I think you know, working from home doesn't give you the natural parameters 
um, and boundaries that going to a place of business or school. And so I know that I have, you know, educators that are working from six in the morning until 1130 at night because they're online and they're always on. And so we're having conversations about what's reasonable expectations. How do you take care of yourself? Because if you're not taking care of yourself, you don't make good decisions for those that you are responsible to. So I think that's really, really important. And also trying to help them create some internal networks of um, resource sharing and, um, you know, getting that, that circle of support together because we're all struggling with the exact same things right now. And we, everybody doesn't have to do it on their own and create the wheel on their own. Um, so I think that's a really important thing. Thank you. Anything else, Pat, that you think educators should be doing that hasn't been mentioned? Well, I would just add, I think um, to the extent we've had a conversation along the lines of, hey, look, we recognize that we're not going to be able to dot every I and cross every T as to what the procedural requirements of IDA might be. Um, and let's be practical and, and, and pragmatic and try to do make a good faith effort and, and act reasonably. Um, that's good advice. Having said that, the, the dark side of that is doing things sort of ad hoc or helter skelter. So even if we're going to agree that we can't have all of the very robust detailed procedures of IDEA in every single situation, I do think it's important for school leaders and administrators to say, okay, well, but this is the process we're going to have. And um, here's a checklist. Here's, we're going to make sure that we've, we have a list of every family. It's, we have clear lines of communication and responsibility. And if we're developing a contingency plan, that's not technically an IEP, you know, convened by a committee containing all the required members, we've at least made sure that we had a reliable, consistent process um, that didn't result in people falling through the cracks or decisions being made that weren't properly documented, weren't properly uh, communicated. And Julie, you know, we've we've been working on that type of a document and, and I'm happy for you to post it. I mean, obviously there is a disclaimer on the bottom that I'm not a legal professional <laughs> who's been doing this for a really long time. Um, and it's the best thinking that we have in the moment. And so I'm happy to share that. Not that it's the right answers, but hopefully it gets people thinking about things they should be thinking about because they create their own process um, to move ahead but obviously deferring to their legal counsel for their district, their state guidance, um, lots of different things coming down the pike. Yeah. So Tanya, this um, was exactly what spurred me to make sure that you were on this podcast is because it is such good thinking, um, this particular document. So I'll just tell you it's not up yet, um, but it will be up very soon. And I will make a specific tab on my home screen. So if you go to www.inclusiveschooling.com, there'll be a COVID-19 tab. And in that tab, you'll see Tanya has designed this probably with her team, pulling all the, these thoughts together. Um, but it is just so useful. I've sent it out to many different special ed directors and I'm hearing them say, oh my goodness, thank, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Um, again, it's just in an effort to take some of the better thinking and not recreate the wheel, but start from somewhere. So that's great. So what happens next? Uh, so today, you know, we are where we are. What do you, what's your best thinking for next steps for folks um, at this point in time? Well, it's hard to say um, because so many, I feel like we've had a year's worth of events happen in, in a week. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's 
I don't think anybody at this point thinks that the students are going to be back. Schools are going to be back in session um, anytime in the near future. Um, I think now people are talking more along the lines of um, if at all this year, and are we going to be ready in the um, fall? I think for students with disabilities, there's two sort of main things that come up about, hey, how are we going to, well, three things, I guess, for rebooting. One would be, um, what are we doing about services that were not able to be provided, notwithstanding our, you know, good faith efforts to, to implement them? How are we going to deal with those services? Um, as I'm sure Tanya and Julie, you can attest, this time period right now between March and June is already usually a sort of a mad dash to get annual review meetings yes. scheduled and held for the following school year. So now we've just sort of, that's going to be very, very, I mean, I almost think that we're going to have to come up with virtual ways to start doing that, um, or otherwise it's just going to be, it's already almost practically impossible to do it in a normal year. It will definitely be practically impossible if we try to start that in May. Right. Um, and then the last thing is going to be, you know, addressing those students who all students are going to find the transition back into school difficult, but coming up with really good strategies and programming for helping those students who we know are going to have a really difficult time transitioning back into school and making sure that, that we have supports and plans in place to address um, their needs to transition back into a, a, you know, deal with these radical changes and shifts in their routine and their lives. Great. I am certain that when we get to the point where we're going back to school, we will hold another podcast to talk about strategies for helping students make those larger jumps back to um, the school experience. Tanya, is there anything else when you think about what's next? Um, I think, you know, we're just trying to figure out from a systems perspective how to track, um, you know, what we're doing with who. And when we talk about what will next steps need to happen when this closure is done to be able to move forward, to really know um, family by family around their students, you know, what do, what do we need to do? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I really encourage people to create good record keeping perspectives um, so that you really are able to stay on top of um, circling back around about how are we going to get back on track. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. And I'm going to just, um, I think it's time we close the podcast. And I just was wondering if um, each of you could share from your perspective a little bit of uh, inspiration for anyone listening. And I guess I'll start. Um, I haven't planned this, but my, my thoughts for folks today are to breathe and know that um, we will be here to support you and that this is a moment where collaboration is more important than ever. And I'm noticing and seeing all the ways that people are turning to one another to support one another. So continue to do that. Um, and always reach out. Um, you can reach out to me at julie at inclusiveschooling.com if you have a specific question or worry or wonder, and we're happy to address it on the podcast. So Tanya or Pat, do you have anything to add? I'll just jump in with, with uh, you know, I think one of the, the particularly challenging things is normally um, in a crisis, we rally around each other and rely on each other for support and solidarity. Um, and the sort of pernicious nature of this crisis is it the very thing that we need to do to get through it is stay apart from each other. Yeah. Uh, but just because we're staying apart from each other uh, physically, as is the prudent thing to do, um, all the more 
we should be trying to connect with each other uh, practically and spiritually. So whether it's it's uh, FaceTiming um, a relative or an old friend or making those sort of personal connections, handwriting letters and drawing pictures or, or looking for ways uh, virtually and non-physically to reach out and express um, support and offer comfort to each other and connection with each other. Um, you know, we are, one of the things I think is kind of sometimes falls beneath the radar for our students with disabilities um, is that we humans are social animals, mm -hmm. um, rely on and need a sense of belonging and community. So let's let's look for ways to, to build that community and experience that community, um, even though we might be physically apart. Thank you, Pat. That's beautiful. Tanya, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I echo that. I think um, the, the, we're hardwired for connection. Mm -hmm. um, everyone is. And so um, just really trying to think about how do we leverage some of the technology that we're able to have access to, to, to have those touch points. And I think it's super important. I really appreciate the conversation with both of you today. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, everybody. Um, and thank you to all our listeners. Stay in touch and we will always be sharing more information with the hopes of helping everybody um, make the best decisions they can. Take care and um, thank you, everyone. <laughs>